ministry. Next one's going to be November 8th. Car care ministry. Next one is November 8th. We'll get the sign-up sheet out for this Wednesday. So just please keep that in the back of your mind, guys. If you want to help out with that, see Jason Phillips. And if you want to get signed up for that, like I said, we'll get the sign-up sheet out here on this next week. Acts 23. Let's do the smart thing. Let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Fathers, we just come to you now. We pray, Lord, as always, you would speak and we would listen. Lord, just guide and direct in all ways and all things. Let your spirit be the one that's leading. Your spirit be the one teaching. And we just say thank you. Make your word alive and active in your name. Amen. Acts 23. Continue our study here through the book of Acts. A little bit of background just to remind everybody what's going on. Paul went to Jerusalem. As Paul went into the temple, the Jews rioted over Paul's presence being there because they thought Paul was bringing Gentiles into the temple, which you have to remember from a biblical perspective. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile, and the Jews didn't like the Gentiles coming into the temple. So they revolted, rioted against Paul. Paul was quickly apprehended by the Romans and kind of put on a pseudo-trial, if you will, to find out what's going on. Well, to make a long story short, they can't find out what's going on. The Jews are saying one thing. Paul is saying another thing. So what happens here throughout the rest of the book of Acts is Paul kind of works his way up the legal system back of ancient Rome. So this morning, he's going to get a chance to go talk to the governor, and eventually he's going to move his way up all the way to the emperor as well. Now, you have to remember the promise that God gave Paul. He told Paul that you're going to go be my light and my witness in Jerusalem. And he said, tough times will come, but I'm going to be with you in it. And that's where we're at here right now. This tough time for Paul, but God's hand is still in it. We left off last week in verse 11. It was the last verse we did. It says, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. That's the promise given to Paul. At Rome, you must also bear witness. Paul knows that. God told Paul that. Now the question comes up is, does Paul believe that? See, it's one thing to hear it. It's one thing to understand it. It's one thing to repeat it. It's another thing to have it in your heart. Paul was told, you'll be my witness at Rome. Well, what happens? Verse 12. When it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So here's his first test of this promise. You're going to be my witness in Rome, but now there's 40 guys that want to stand up and they make this vow... We're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. That's a pretty big statement. That's a real big statement. You have to remember, threats never negate the promises of God. doesn't matter how many guys. doesn't matter what's going on. I mean, imagine you're in this church here today, and all of a sudden somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, there's 40 men that have promised they're not going to eat or drink until you're dead. Now, how would you make that feel, you know? That would kind of have some thoughts going through your mind. It's not a coincidence that the night before, God appeared to Paul and said, you will be my witness of Rome. Trust me on this, Paul. So this brings up this concept of these promises of God. Dustin, can you put that slide up there real quick? So I started thinking about all these different promises that the Lord has given us. And just like with Paul, these promises are given to us. But then there's people waiting in ambush to steal that promise from you. You know these verses. First one, for he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. The world may give up on you. Loved ones may give up on you. Friends and family may give up on you. But isn't that a nice 
blessing to know Christ will never leave you nor forsake you no matter what you're going through. Next one, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. I don't know how many times people come and they talk to me and they have themselves convinced that God is this angry neighbor that lives upstairs that just likes to make your life miserable. No. The Bible says that he wants to give you peace. He wants to give you a future and a hope. Now, the problem is our definition of peace, future, and hope may be different than God's definition of future, peace, and hope. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, they had a future, a peace, and a hope. They were still in the fiery furnace. That doesn't sound very peaceful to me. That doesn't sound very hopeful to me, and their future seemed very limited. But the Lord saw them through it. Daniel being thrown in the lion's den. Future, peace, hope doesn't really seem like it to me, but God's definition is different than mine. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That when the Lord allows something into your life, we can trust that the Lord will use that for good. That is a promise given to believers. And the last one, it's just the simplest one, Psalm 119, 68. You are good and do good. How straightforward is that? You are good and do good. That's the promise of the Lord. Threats do not negate these promises. Don't doubt in the darkness what God revealed to you in the light. See, so often when things are going good, we got these verses marked. I'm willing to bet a lot of you already knew these verses. Most of you probably have these verses marked or underlined in your Bible. And I doubt there's too many people here today that has never heard those points before. It's one thing to hear it. It's one thing to know it. But do you believe it? Paul had to make a decision where he said, Okay, Lord, I'm going to be your witness at Rome. No matter what these 40 guys do... It's not going to do anything against me. Because I don't have to be scared of what man brings against me. Can you go with me to Psalm 91, please? Psalm 91. Psalm 91. We have a tendency in this world to walk in fear and not faith. We have a tendency to walk in the fear of what if, rather than the faith. Of the Lord says, I'm going to get you through this. If you are a person that has just come in here today and you're struggling with something, maybe there's an upcoming job situation, an upcoming family thing, a medical thing, and you're walking in that fear right now of what if, Psalm 91 is the psalm for you. Look at this, Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God and Him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings shall you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Look at this, verse 5. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by the day, nor of the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor of the destruction that lies waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. So everybody's dropping like flies around you. The Lord says, I still got you. He says right here, look at this. You should not be afraid. Look at verse 5. Terror by night. How many of us walked in fear at night? Arrow that flies by the day. We're afraid in the day of this or that. Pestilence. Sickness. Doctor's appointments. We walk in fear and worry and darkness. Destruction. Verse 6. One of the greatest things that the world throws at us is just fear. Fear of what if? What if something happens to your kids? What if something happens to your spouse? What if something happens at work? 
This fear. I remember reading the autobiography of Corrie ten Boom. And you know the story of Corrie ten Boom. She was arrested over in Holland and went through the Holocaust for trying to help Jews. And her sister told her in the middle of the Holocaust, God is not a God of what ifs. We walk in this fear of what ifs. That's not God. The promises of God, it says, the Lord is good and does good. Paul was told this. You will bear witness at Rome. Forty guys want to kill him now. Okay, Paul, do you believe it or do you not believe it? Well, let's see what happens here. Verse 16, so when Paul's sister's son heard of the ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went inside and asked privately, what is that that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have been bound by themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young men depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. Do you ever stop and wonder how hungry those 40 guys got? I mean, seriously. Do you ever wonder who's the first one to kind of give up and say, forget this, guys, I'm eating? I mean, because obviously it didn't work out. Obviously it wasn't going to work out. Somebody had to be the first guy to sneak a cheeseburger. It just had to be one of those things. So, here's this divine appointment. Paul's nephew, verse 16, just happens to hear this story, happens to tell the Roman guard, and now everybody's going to be okay. And they take practical steps here. Verse 23, And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. If you're keeping track, that's 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, 470 people to protect Paul as they take him to Caesarea. And not only that, verse 24, did you catch this? Paul gets to ride. The spearmen have to walk. Paul gets to ride. Now, this is a divine appointment. God divinely worked this out so the nephew would hear, bring it to the Romans, and Paul is divinely protected. I have to say I'm a bit disappointed in this passage. Because, you know, for God to divinely protect Paul, don't you want something a little more flashy? I mean, this is just almost too practical. The nephew overhears it, tells the Roman guards, and the Roman guards keep Paul safe. That doesn't sound too exciting. Isn't it more exciting when... You know, uh, who was it? Uh, Peter and John were in prison. Wasn't it more exciting when there was that uh, angel that appeared to Peter? Excuse me, just Peter. Angel appeared to Peter and guided him out. Now, that was exciting. Or when Paul and Barnabas were in prison and there was that localized earthquake and all the gates fell down and then they left. See, that's more exciting. This is not really that fun of a story. I think the Lord could have done a little bit better with this, don't you think? See, here's the point. Don't let the practicality of God take away from the miraculous. Sometimes the way the Lord does things is just pretty straightforward. And we have a tendency to overlook that practicality. God wanted to keep Paul safe, so the nephew overheard the story, which then told the Romans. It's not flashy. It's not really all that exciting. But it works. And I think sometimes as believers, we have a tendency to overlook the practical workings of God. Right now, we're sitting here. Blood is pumping, we are breathing. That is a miracle. That's the practical workings of God. Last night, my, one of my sons tripped and fell. Kind of cut open his uh, eyebrow a little bit. You know what? The blood started clotting. It stopped bleeding. 
I'll heal up, I'll have a scar. Practical workings of God. A lot of us are going to go home. I shouldn't say a lot of us. I assume every one of us here has a house to go home to. God practically has provided for you. We have the tendency to overlook this stuff, and so we take away from the miraculous because it's just too common. The Lord took care of Paul. He promised he would, and that's exactly what happened. He took care of Paul. Now, this Roman leader here, his name is uh, Claudius Lysias, verse 25. He's now sending him to the governor Felix. Basically, he's saying, i got to get Paul out of here. we got to figure out what's going on. Verse 25. He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. When I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And it was told to me that the Jews lay in wait for the man. I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to stand before you the charges against him. Farewell. Now, a couple points here. Number one. Claudius Lysias kind of leads out some key details about uh, Paul being bound as a Roman, about Paul getting ready to be scourged. A few little details let out. He's trying to make himself look good. But he sends him to Felix, and he says, this is the story right here. Now, this is kind of interesting. Verse 20, And when it was told to me the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you. These 40 guys wanted to kill him. I, I, I want to talk about these guys for a second. These 40 guys were zealous for the Lord, weren't they? Now, it was misguided zeal... But they were still zealous for the Lord. Paul kind of talks about this a little bit in Romans 10, when he says that people have zeal without knowledge. They're zealous for things, but they don't have the knowledge of what to do with it. But they're still enthusiastic. They're still zealous. These guys were zealous for the Lord. It was misguided zeal, but it was still zealous for the Lord. See, so often we kind of equate zealousness with being on fire for the Lord. It's really not the same. I could get on top of the roof of this church... And be zealous to fly. I could flap my arms like you've never seen before. I could be enthusiastic. I'm still going to crash down to the ground. You need to have the knowledge that goes with the zeal. This is what happens a lot of times as believers. We get saved. We're young. We're excited. We're zealous for the Lord. But we have no knowledge. What happens then is we've been saved for a while... We now have maturity. We've been through life events. We've been through the struggles of being a Christian. So now we have the knowledge of it. But then somewhere along the line, we lost the zeal for it. And I tell you, that's a bad combo. To be zealous without knowledge, but to be a seasoned saint without the zeal, that's just sad. That's why it's always a wonderful combination to put a new believer with a mature saint. The new believer is so excited, let's tell everybody about Jesus. The seasoned saint has the wisdom... To know what to do, when to do, and how to do it. What a beautiful combination. How sad is it to see the seasoned saint with all these life experiences and all this knowledge of the Lord to go into their final moments just kind of floating away. Now ah, you want to go out with guns a-blazing. Zealous still for the Lord. And what do we do for these new believers that are zealous? Let's help them have the knowledge of what's right. That's why we have the small group studies. That's why we have the Bible studies. That's why we have the discipleship classes. Seasoned saints, take one of those new believers. Take them under your wing. This is that whole discipleship thing that we've been talking about for weeks, if not months out here. Let's be zealous, but have knowledge. And where does that knowledge come from? Remember, we just talked about this on Wednesday. There's three truths in the Bible. The truth of the Holy Spirit, the truth of Jesus, and the truth of God's Word. So whatever we want to do in the name of the Lord, it has to line up to those three things. It has to line up to the nature of Jesus. 
It has to line up to the scriptures. It can't contradict God's word. And it has to line up to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So when somebody comes to me and they're zealous for the Lord and what they want to do in the name of God does not line up with scriptures, they're wrong. When somebody comes that's zealous for the name of the Lord and what they want to do does not line up with the nature of Jesus, they're wrong. How many people in the world today are doing things in the name of their God and they're zealous for it, but there's no knowledge? Truth of the Spirit, the truth of Jesus, and the truth of God's Word. These 40 men, they're zealous. They have no knowledge. We need to make sure as believers living today, we have the zeal for the Lord, we're enthusiastic for the things of God, but we also have the wisdom and knowledge on how to do it. We need to have that balance there. Verse 31. And then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatis. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. Now when they came to Caesarea and delivered him the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from, and when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. Now we need to talk about Herod's Praetorium there for a second, but we need to go one extra verse with this. Just flip over to Acts 24 real quick. What happens here in verse 22, we're going to get to the rest of this real quick, but I want to make a point. He's staying in Herod's Praetorium, verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So Paul is kind of under house arrest, if you will. He has to stay in Herod's Praetorium. But he's got liberty, and people can come visit him, etc. Now, we need to talk about Herod's Praetorium. This is where he's held as a prisoner. Herod's Praetorium was a mansion along the beach. You can go look at the ruins of it if you want. So for two years, Paul's under house arrest in a mansion along the beach. Beautiful weather in Caesarea. Now, I want to make this point. So often when we talk about the will of the Lord... We always talk about God and these difficult times, and He allows these tough times to come into your life to mold you and to train you up. Sometimes He also brings a season of just blessing. That's also the love of the Lord. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize I'm His son, and He just loves me. I mean, He really just loves me. And as He loves me, He wants to also take care of me. And that doesn't mean there's not difficult times, but sometimes I catch myself looking around my house, my wife, my kids, the church, and it's just like, wow, Lord, this is so overwhelming. You've blessed us. Yes, it's a struggle. Yes, it's a fight. But it's also a blessing. The Lord does want to meet your needs. He wants to take care of you. And I think sometimes we present Christianity as this awful thing. Struggle for 80 years on earth, and then you finally get to go to heaven. It's true. It is a struggle. But for those 80 years, the Bible also says, enjoy what God has given you. There's a blessing. There's a balance there. So, Paul, he's got some rough stuff coming up. He's got shipwrecks, scourgings. He's got some pretty tough prison coming up. But for two years, he's in Herod's Praetorium, the mansion along the beach in Caesarea. Reminds me of a story one time I heard a pastor say. It was Pastor Chuck Smith. He talked about how when he was new in the ministry, they had the kids, and they didn't have a lot of money, so they scrounged up the money they could, and they went to the grocery store. And the only thing they could buy, if I remember correctly, were baked beans and green beans. Just a couple cans. That's all they could afford at the time. So they went up to go buy their baked beans and green beans. As they got up to the cash register, the person said, Oh, Chuck, I meant to tell you, you won the drawing for a $25 gift voucher at the grocery store. 
And he stopped and said, oh, it's just the Lord's working this out. So Pastor Chuck then tells the story that he went out and they spent the whole $25 on steak. And his logic was this, if God's buying, you might as well make it good. I think there's a lot of truth to that sometimes. Sometimes there's just enjoying the blessing of the Lord. Now, don't take that too far. I hope you guys know that. But there's also seasons where it's okay to stop and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. So what happens here is Paul, for two years, was on his beachfront property. There's still this trial thing. Verse 24, Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders in a certain order named Tertullius. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. When he was called upon Tertullius, began his accusation, saying, seeing that, though you, seeing that though through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity as being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. We need to stop real quick. A little bit of a history lesson here. Felix is the only one in the Roman Empire that was a slave that, that became also a governor. And secular historians at this time said that basically he was a governor that governed like a slave. He was corrupt. He was immoral. There were riots going around. He was not a good leader in any way whatsoever. So in verse 2, when they're talking about, we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, that's a bunch of baloney. They're just buttering him up. I mean, how simple is this point? Careful when people just want to compliment you. Sometimes you've got to be careful about that. Careful when people want to compliment you too much. The Bible has all these passages that warn against flattery, these, this idea of buttering up. And it always kind of concerns me a little bit that anytime there's somebody new that comes out to church, and maybe they've been here for one message, and they start saying things like, you know, that's, that's the best message I've ever heard, this is the best church. And I'm like, nah, shop around a little bit, man. You know what I mean? You know, we, there's more going on. We have our struggles and everything. And, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years out here, and there's been times where the people come in with the flattery, and you have to stop and say, okay, hold on a second here. This sounds too good to be true. And there's been times where over time you see then the true heart that comes out. There's been times where you stop and you say, Lord, I wish I would have caught that earlier. Careful when people want to compliment you with too many words. Basically, Felix, let's butter you up here. Verse 4, nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by our courtesy a few words from us. We found this man a plague a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. That's not true. They wanted to rip him to pieces. Verse 7, But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. Not true again. Lysias was just trying to save Paul. Commanding his accusers to come to you, by examining him, you yourself, you may ascertain all these things which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Basically, Paul is a rebel. Paul is trying to incite a riot. Paul is causing trouble. We're just trying to protect ourselves. And these Roman soldiers just kind of stepped in. We had this thing all under control, Felix. No, three riots later, they're finally here at Felix. Paul gets a chance to speak now. Verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Note Paul's buttering up in verse 10. The only good thing he can say is, Felix, you've been governor for a lot of years. You know? Can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. That's the best thing he could say about Felix. You've been a governor for many years, Felix. Verse 11. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. What Paul is trying to say is, wait a second. I'm a ringleader of the Nazarenes. I, I organized this riot and rebellion. 
I've been in Jerusalem 12 days. Not even possible. Verse 12, And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, that is the way of Jesus Christ, which they call sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with the mob nor with Talmud. I was purified. I was righteously correct. From according to the Jews, I was doing nothing wrong. Verse 19. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Paul is basically saying, where are these people that saying I was inciting a riot? Where are the actual witnesses? Or else let those who are here themselves say, if they found any wrongdoing in me, why I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Resurrection. And that's the word we're going to use to build on for next week. What Paul is basically saying, the reason I'm here is because I said that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's our catch point for the next week, is this idea of the resurrection is everything. Now, there's a couple points here I want to say as we get ready to close up. Can you go with me real quick to Nehemiah? Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of the most practical application books in the Bible of how to deal with difficult things and difficult situations. Go to Nehemiah chapter 6, please. Nehemiah chapter 6. There's an interesting passage in the book of uh, Proverbs. It kind of deals with some of the stuff we're talking about. Because basically Paul right here, as he's giving his defense, all these people are just making accusations against him, saying things that aren't true. If you've ever been in that position before, you know how difficult that is. You know how absolutely difficult it is when somebody is just constantly saying things about you that are half-truths, that aren't true, and it just really gets you fired up. And you just want to argue I mean, you just want to fight over this because it is so frustrating to see. There's two verses in the book of Proverbs which I'm just going to share with you real quick. The first verse says, if you run into a fool, basically don't even talk to him. It's not worth it. The next verse, immediately afterwards, says, if you run into a fool, make sure you don't let the fool talk and argue with him to prove to him he's wrong. Do you see the contradictory statement of those two verses? One verse says, when you run into a fool that's saying things about you, keep your mouth shut, don't say anything, it's not worth it. The next verse says, if you run into a fool that's saying things about you, don't let him say stuff, stand up. What those verses are trying to say is, there's time to keep your mouth shut, there's a time to say something. The best example of this is Jesus. When Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate was asking him all these questions. Who are you? Are you God? Are you the Messiah? Jesus answered. It is rightful that you say that I am. So he would answer Pilate's questions. And then Pilate came and asked Jesus, what is truth? And do you remember Jesus' answer to that? Nothing. Silence. Jesus knew there was times to answer, and there was times where there wasn't. By Pilate asking what is truth, I don't think Pilate really cared what truth was. Jesus knew that. The Bible says that Jesus went on and talked to Herod and didn't say a word. So there's times when somebody is just being a fool, and they're trying to drag you into it. Just keep your mouth shut. 
It's not worth it. Don't go down to that level. But then there's times when those people are saying things, you have to put your foot down and say, I'm sorry, I can't let this one go. How do you know the difference? Well, first off, the Holy Spirit will lead you. But I think we have a good practical example of this in Nehemiah chapter 6. Paul was being accused, being attacked with words. How did he handle it? Well, we read that. Let's see how Nehemiah handles it. Now, I need a little bit of background here in Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah is called by the Lord to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. There's two main antagonists in the book of Nehemiah, Sanballat and Tobiah. Sanballat and Tobiah are constantly going against Nehemiah in this rebuilding of the walls. Verse 1, Nehemiah 6. Now it happened when Sanballat and Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of her enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plan of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So these guys want to get together with Nehemiah. Let's just get together and talk. Nehemiah says, no. I had somebody tell me years ago when I first took over as a pastor, if anybody ever wants to meet you in the plain of oh no, just say oh no. It's not worth it. There are certain times you don't need to have a conversation with people. There's not. Years ago there was somebody that uh, was really trying to cause harm to the church and to us, and they called me up and they wanted to get together to meet, and you know, let's, let's figure this out, let's talk about it. Nah, we don't need to do that. There's really nothing we need to say. Verse 3. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Basically, I'm too busy to meet. I really wish I would have learned 15 years ago, it's okay to say no. Sometimes you just don't need to have that conversation. Verse 4. But they sent me this message four times. And I answered them in the same manner. Do you ever know anybody that just tries to wear you down? Oh, boy, it's difficult. Verse 5, Then Sambalat sent his servant to me as before, the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you also have appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king, so come therefore and let us consult together. What a bunch of baloney! You know, we're hearing all these rumors, Nehemiah. You want to start a kingdom. You're going to be their king. Hey, Nehemiah, let's just get together and talk about this. Look at this great response, verse 8. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. I really wish I would have known that 15 years ago too. I use that now. I've had times where people have come up and they're like, well, I heard this, I heard that, this is what's going on. The proverbial classic, people are saying. I just want to share a couple tidbits I share. Feel free to use them. They're not my original thoughts. I've stolen them from somebody else. If somebody ever comes up to me and starts saying, well, people are saying, I usually ask, well, who? Tell me who. So what's the deal with this? No, it's the time they don't want to say who. Next point I usually say then is, well, you know what? I'm not going to have a third-party conversation. I'm not going to have a conversation that you had with somebody and then come to me. Because biblically speaking, Matthew 18 says this. If you have something against somebody, you just go right to them. So when they're ready to talk, let's talk. Until they want to talk, then just to be perfectly blunt, it's gossip until then. And sometimes people like to push it. I've said this before in verse 8. Those things aren't true. You're just making them up. Straightforward, hopefully done in love. Nehemiah handles this wonderfully. He doesn't go to the plane of oh no. He doesn't get worn down by the five times. He doesn't get worn down by the rumors and all this other type of stuff. He says, verse 8, guys, not true. 
Nothing else needs to be said. Verse 9, for they were all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah says, I'm not going there. I'm not having that conversation. God, strengthen me. We can learn a lot from that. Paul, back in Acts 24, they make all these accusations against him. Paul just very calmly says, not true, not true, not true. Wow, there's a lot of maturity in that. As I look at sometimes the conversations I've had over the years, they start saying something, I start saying something, the flesh gets riled up, and next thing you know, it is not a godlike, Christ-like conversation in any way whatsoever. As believers, we're supposed to be peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, the Bible says. Boy, that's how we handle that type of conflict. Paul basically says this, it's not true. What they really want to talk about is the resurrection, and that's what we're going to get into next week, is the resurrection and why that is the key to everything. Marv, if we want to come forward here for the final song, let's, let's bring all these points together. God promised Paul, you'll make it to Rome. Forty soldiers, excuse me, forty people that want to kill him, nothing to worry about. Trust the promises of God. The Lord may practically just take care of you. 470 Roman soldiers, that's not real, real miraculous, but it's a practical protection that the Lord gave him. We also see this idea, too, of just speaking the truth, speaking the truth in love. Paul not getting riled up, Paul not getting rattled. He knew what the Lord had in store. Paul was just going to be a light and a witness, and this is what happens next week. Is this guy Felix? Oh, man, Paul gets a real opportunity to present Christ to Felix. And then the next governor, Festus and Agrippa, Paul gets a real opportunity to tell them about the Lord. What a blessing that was. So we'll give it over to Marv here for the final song and let you go with a word of prayer.